Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, we thank you for joining us today. We're talking about COVID-19 and specifically the vaccine today. I know that is on everybody's mind right now. How do I get it? When do I get it? When can my employees get it? When can my grandma get it? How does it work? What are the side effects? Should I get it? Uh, a lot of good questions, right? And, and this is a, a brand new vaccine out there. So there are a lot of unanswered questions uh, to most people. And hopefully we can help answer some of those for you today. Let's see if I can click on the next slide here. So brought to you today by uh, both the Health and Safety Council, which is who I am affiliated with, as well as UT Health, which uh, Dr. Delclose is affiliated with. Both of those entities have missions of protecting workers, uh, protecting the integrity of the, of the workplace, changing the culture of health. So if you've joined us throughout this series, of webinars during this pandemic, you know that we're, we're just here to help guide and uh, bring as much knowledge as we can to these, these various topics uh, related to the pandemic. And today it's gonna be on the vaccine. They're, these are these uh, two you know, good looking gentlemen that are gonna be your hosts today, Dr. George Delclose with UT Health, and I'm Tommy Heisler with the Health and Safety Council. So if you've been on these before, for better or for worse, you, you've seen us and we're gonna be your guides today. Uh, if you have questions, and, and please, this, this webinar is geared to your questions. So there is a question uh, box on your desktop that you can see there. If you're calling in on your phone, you probably won't have the capabilities of asking those questions because everybody is on mute. But if you're on a desktop, uh, you can, or, or on, I think the phone has the app and you can ask questions in that question box. So please feel free throughout this webinar. If you've got a question that pops up, shoot it into that question box and we try our best to answer every one of those questions. And if we can't answer them live, then we answer them via email to you. Uh, this webinar will be recorded. It is being recorded and then we will uh, give that link out to this recording so you can go back and reference it or if you missed it or you get called away to a meeting, rest assured you don't have to write anything down or take screenshots, you're going to have access to it. Thank you to the Health and Safety Council annual sponsors. These are our platinum sponsors. Without your, your support of our endeavors, things like this uh, would be limited. So again, we, we thank all of, our, all of our sponsors, especially our platinum sponsors. Gold sponsors as well there. We thank all of the UT Health uh, donors as well because uh, without them, uh, UT Health would, would be limited in what they can provide as well. So thank you to all of our sponsors and donors, we appreciate it. So without further ado, we're gonna, we're gonna have just a, a few slides up front just to kind of give you a snapshot of what's going on. If you're anything even like me, you kind of get exhausted listening and trying to see charts and what's going on, you know it's bad, right? It's not getting better. So Dr. Uh, Delclose George is gonna kick this off and kind of give a snapshot of what's going on in the country and locally. George? Okay, thank you, Tommy. And uh, thanks everyone for, for attending. So the bulk of today's webinar, as Tommy was saying, is, is on the vaccine. And I think it's important to remember why the vaccine is so critical in this. Um, it's because of the picture that we are seeing here. Uh, this is the latest, well, as of yesterday, um, which was based on 
data from the day before for Monday, uh, the situation has clearly been getting worse. Uh, we are in the worst month ever of the pandemic. Um, and uh, we're talking about yesterday, over 4,000 deaths in one day from COVID. That's what we're trying to combat. I don't want to get ahead of myself uh, with the vaccine, but let me just say that to date, there have been no deaths recorded from receiving the vaccine. So keep that in mind. We're talking about 200 to 300,000 cases a day, and it is continuing to increase. And we're talking about three to 4,000 deaths a day, which is more than the number of people that sadly died uh, on 9-11 in a single day. And this is happening every single day. We are close to 400,000 deaths um, due to this nightmare. And so just keep that in the back of your mind. If you have questions about whether to get the vaccine or not, which are very legitimate questions, no question about that. But um, keep this in mind. This is what we are facing and this is what we are trying to combat. Next slide. If we look at the distribution uh, of uh, the current situation throughout the US, basically the darker colors mean higher case rates where the situation is worse. And you can see that it's particularly bad nowadays in Arizona and California, but also in some parts of Texas along the, the, the border area, for example, as well as in East Texas uh, near the Golden Triangle as well. Um, and so it's still very heterogeneous. Those, those of y'all that have attended these webinars before uh, know that I typically show this map, uh, this map and every time it's a different color. And so I usually say, just because right now in Harris County, we are not doing well, but we are still doing better than the rest of the state, I may not be saying the same thing in a week or two. I may be saying the opposite because over all of these webinars, the colors and the distribution of these of changes on this map have um, have varied considerably. So just because you're doing well today doesn't mean that you won't be uh, doing as well uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of weeks from now. Thanks. Next. So here's the situation in Texas. This is also a map I've shown other times, and usually I can point to a lot of heterogeneity, a lot of differences in shapes and shades, excuse me, in shades of color, showing that there's a lot of variation. But this week's map is different. The majority is in the bad zone, meaning the red zone. This is defined as counties where the test positivity rate, that means the total number of positive tests over the total number of tests performed is above 10%. Um, the ideal, we consider a situation controlled when it is at 5% or less. We are above 10% in the majority of the state, and overall we're getting closer to 20%. So the situation in Texas is bad. Now there are some counties, and typically they are going to be, for the most part, sparsely populated counties that are not in the red, and even some are in green. But the majority of the state is in bad shape right now, um, so that's, again, that's the background uh, against which we're going to be talking about the vaccine. Next, next slide. Next slide. Do I have any, ta any takers? <laughs> it's, it's going slow. It's going slow. Okay, here we go. So, um, 
from, from our School of Public Health, we have a group in our biostatistics department that has been monitoring uh, the numbers of cases uh, in Texas, not only monitoring what is happening, meaning using real-time data, but also trying to look a week or two ahead and trying to project which way we will go. So if you look at this slide, you know, back in March, that's when the cases were starting to go up, we had the big peak in um, July, uh, June, July, then things came back down in September, but starting in late October, we started creeping up again and then very, very quickly. And then Thanksgiving got added to Christmas, got added to New Year's, all of that added up. And so that's why we are in the fastest, the steepest climb right now that we have ever been. And if we look at the vertical line that says January 12th, that's yesterday, and we look to the right of that, that is the way that our statisticians are projecting that it will go over the next uh, week or so. So the, the average trend is still going upward, but it could get better or it could get a lot worse. It all depends on the effect, not so much of the vaccine, it's too early. Uh, from in most cases of vaccination to, to determine the beneficial effects. It's depending on how well we are recovering from the holidays and the degree to which people did or did not stick to the recommendations of wearing a mask, socially distancing, and especially avoiding large gatherings during the holidays. Next slide. And this is the R value, the RT value that we've talked about. Just uh, for those folks who are new, this is a, a, a value that we... Um, a statistic that we follow um, to see where things are. So an R value of one, 1.0, means that one infected person on average will infect one other person. If the R value is less than one, then that infected person is likely to infect less than one person and things are good. That's a usual indication that things are coming under control. But if the R value is above one, that means that one infected person is infecting more than one person. And you can have R values that um, are two and three and, and even much higher, for example, for diseases like measles, where they might be 18. Right now in Texas, the R value is 1.12. And that may seem like a small number, but when you multiply it times the number of cases that we have in Texas and the population in Texas, that means that each infected person is infecting more than one other person. And you multiply that again times all of the number of uh, infected people. And that, that explains the increase, the large number of cases that we are still seeing. So the R value above one is not a good sign. Next. So uh, we've talked about this in previous webinars before. Some people just say, well, we're detecting more cases because we're testing a whole lot more. And for a while, uh, some of that was true, but not all of it. So the blue line here, and this dates back to the end of September, the blue line tells us how many tests, which way the tests were headed. And you saw that from about the uh, the end of September, a little, little bit at the beginning of October, the number of tests that were available to folks steadily increased. Um, and at the same time, the orange line shows us the number of cases, the week-to-week -week change in number of cases, and it was, it's been going, as I've said before, steadily up since October and really taken off during the holidays. When the blue line and the orange line are parallel, exactly parallel, that means that probably we're detecting more cases because we're testing more. But when the lines become separate, and especially when the orange line is accelerating at a faster pace, 
then the changes, again, the orange line are the cases, uh, is, is accelerating at a greater pace than the blue line, which is the number of tests uh, week to week that are being done, then that tells you that it cannot all be explained simply by, because we're doing more tests. That gap is widening, and that means that the number of tests, uh, excuse me, the number of positives, the number of positive cases are increasing and cannot be explained exclusively on the basis of doing more testing at all. That means there are other factors, and those other factors are the ones that we all know of. People not following precautions and spreading the virus. Next slide. So more locally here in the Texas Medical Center, um, we are, or we were about a week ago, we were um, in pretty tough shape in the sense that our hospitals were filling up again, just like they did in June and July, with more cases of COVID. And that means the ICUs were also filling up. And that means that the, de the deaths were increasing. Um, we uh, have learned, we, we've learned through the, the waves in April and June and July, we've learned how to prepare better. And so even though the cases are increasing, and in some cases they're increasing more than in June and July, we have progressively adapted the contingency measures that we have in place to try and allow the hospitals to absorb those increases without uh, falling into scenes like what we've been seeing on TV in Los Angeles, where unfortunately patients are being treated in the hallways, in converted offices that are serving now as patient rooms, or uh, where they're running out of oxygen, or where the EMS service uh, is having to make tough decisions on whether to transport a patient or not if they look like they're not going to make it. Uh, in Houston, fortunately, we have not yet or ever been in that situation. Back in June and July, even though the increase was less than it is now, we were less well prepared and we, we, we struggled. We had uh, to take a lot of measures to make sure that our healthcare workers were adequately protected with the right type of respiratory protection and face shields and gloves and all of that. And we had to put in place contingency measures to increase the number of ICU beds by converting non-ICU beds to ICU beds and really running around a little bit. And there were times where we thought that we were going to reach a point where our hospitals would be overflowing. Um, now, uh, like I said, we're better prepared. So we've been able to handle this dramatic increase in uh, since October much better. That doesn't mean the system wasn't stressed. It's just that we have several levels. We still have uh, enough measures to put in place so that we don't turn into a Los Angeles County. Um, and that is going okay. In Houston, and that's what the Texas Medical Center statistics reflect, the R value is identical to that of the state, 1.13, but it has stabilized compared to the previous week. So I don't like it being above one, like I said in the previous slide, but the fact that it's not higher than 1.13 tells me maybe, maybe we're starting to level off. That's also supported in part by our test positivity rate in the hospital area, which is around 13.6% for the last seven days. And the week before that it was 14. Uh, so it's a little bit better than it was last week, but not as good as it was last month, where it was only 7.5%. For the city of Houston, the positivity rate currently is around, I believe the last time I looked at around 16%, so higher than in our hospitals. The number, these are different indicators that we follow in the medical center to know what kind of adjustments we have to make. So the number of new cases is still pretty dramatic, 2,900 a day. 
um, in the greater Houston area that tested positive. Not all of those are hospitalized. And that's a little bit better than in the previous week, but not as good as in the previous month, which were still high numbers. 2,000 a day is a lot for this part of the state. Uh, and the number of hospital admissions this last week is a little bit lower than last week. So maybe at least in the Harris County, Houston area, things are starting to level. They're still at a very high rate, but they're starting to level, which is hopefully the precursor to them then turning the corner and starting to go down. Fortunately, one thing that we have not had to worry about in many months now is the, uh, the uh, provision of personal protective equipment for our frontline healthcare workers who take care of these patients. Um, we now have ample PPE and we have measures to keep it that way. And so that adds one less uh, area of concern. We're adequately protecting our folks. And the, the reality is even though we still see positive cases among our healthcare uh, workers, um, the majority of those, at least in my experience, have come not from being around patients that were positive because they're, you know, they're adequately protected when they're in the hospital and they are monitored to make sure that they're adequately protected. Most of these folks, even though they're dealing with COVID patients, their cases are coming from the outside, from community exposures. Next slide. Okay, I'm just a little bit, but Tommy's going to talk more about the vaccine, but I did want to introduce a couple of things uh, for you to consider and then I'll turn it over to him. We've heard about vaccines being available. We've heard about a lot of vaccines being tested and tried and developed. Um, and so just, uh, I'm not gonna get into all of these uh, details but I, uh, on this slide because it'll take up a lot of time, but mainly just wanna let you know that a vaccine is not a vaccine is not a vaccine. There are vaccines uh, are developed, there are different types of vaccines that can be developed and it depends, although they all pursue the same thing, which is to protect us against infection from COVID and protect us from severe infection, the way in which they do it is different. So for example, the two vaccines that have been approved right now are what are known as mRNA vaccines. They're the ones, uh, if you look at the column on the left and down at the bottom where it says Moderna, um, the, the, the Moderna and, and also the, the Pfizer vaccines are this type of vaccine and I'll describe how it works in a second. But there are other types. Um, you know, most vaccines that we give to our kids um, are what are called live attenuated vaccines. That means they've taken a virus, the actual virus that we're trying to protect us against, and inactivated it, uh, but still keeping enough of those par parts of those um, of that virus, so that when the when you vaccinate somebody, the body recognizes it as foreign and develops antibodies against it. So it's a weakened form of the actual virus. It's not activated. Um, but it's still live. So uh, there are some concerns with live vaccines. Um, and uh, in the US, we're not really looking at any live vaccines that I, that I am, am aware of, um, but they are being developed in other countries, for example, in India. Inactivated vaccines, you again, you use a virus that has been killed and um, either with heat or chemicals or something like that. And then we inject it into a, a, a person's body and the body recognizes it as a foreign and it doesn't really increase your chances of developing the infection uh, because the virus is already dead, but it does stimulate the body to create, to generate antibodies to protect you from that. And then the last, uh, the, the next one, subunits, that's when you don't take a whole virus and, and kill it, but you take fragments, parts of the virus that the body will recognize as foreign and still develop antibodies against those subunits of the virus. And it's still effective in 
inactivating the entire virus if you're exposed to it. And then finally, we have what are called viral vectors. These are important because a lot of the viruses that are uh, in clinical trials right now but have not yet been authorized by the Food and Drug Administration of the U.S. are using this technology. And it sounds kind of weird, but basically it's called a viral vector vaccine. This is when you take another virus, completely different from coronavirus. And the, one of the common ones is, is adenovirus, which can it can cause, you know, in kids, it can cause like runny noses and, and sometimes conjunctivitis. But for the more, most part, they, enact, they, they use harmless adenovirus and they use it as a, as, a, as a bus, basically as a transportation mechanism on which you um, uh, can attach your uh, vaccine and use the, 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 the uh, adenovirus, this viral vector, to penetrate into the body and to stimulate the body to make antibodies. Um, you probably heard of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is being developed in the UK, or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is being developed in the US and would require only one dose. Those types of uh, those two vaccines are using this viral vector technology, as well as the, the vaccine they've developed in Russia and uh, a prototype that, uh, not a prototype, one that they've developed in China as well. Next slide. So I'm gonna focus in on this next slide on the mRNA vaccines, which are the two that are currently approved, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, and I know these have become household words. So basically, if y'all remember, and everybody is now more than familiar with what the coronavirus looks like, it looks like something with a bunch of spikes in it. Um, and those spikes are actually proteins. And so the idea behind an mRNA uh, vaccine is to stimulate the body to create antibodies that block that, spir that spike protein. Those spikes mechanically are, are what attach to our body cells. And then once that virus is attached, it can penetrate the cells and it can start to replicate and cause an infection, et cetera. The idea behind an mRNA vaccine is to block that uh, spike protein by creating an antibody that locks onto it. And so um, what they've done, if they've, the virus has a genetic sequence, a gene, you know, a, a genome, and they have uh, looked at what part of that genetic sequence codes for the production of this spike protein. And that little fragment is what, which they develop synthetically. This is not in animals. This is not, you know, live viruses or anything like that. They develop it um, with machines. And it's that uh, small uh, part of the, of the genetic code is uh, the messenger RNA, and that is exactly what is in the vaccine, the Pfizer, the Moderna vaccines. They put it, they envelop it into, um, they use uh, nanotechnology, and they put that mRNA inside a little protective vessel made out of fat uh, lipids, and then they inject it, and um, that, uh, uh, as soon as it gets into uh, the body, it latches on to our body's cells, our, our antibody-producing cells. The lipid dissolves and the mRNA penetrates and tells the, starts giving the body signals to make antibodies against it. That's kind of the layperson's explanation. And once we have the antibodies, then um, we're ready for when we're exposed to COVID. The two mRNA vaccines, as Tommy will say in a, in a, in a um, in, a, in, a, in a, a while, although it's the first time that they are used in humans, this is not new technology and he'll explain why, nor has it been rushed. And it has been incredibly effective uh, or efficacious in, in, in the trials, more than 95% effic uh, efficacy. And that's very important. 
Next slide. And, and this is my last slide. So where are we? Uh, Y'all have been hearing a lot on the news about problems with the vaccine rollout. The federal government had promised that by the end of December, 20 million people would be vaccinated. Now remember that the first vaccine didn't start, which was Pfizer vaccine, wasn't approved until December 10th, and it didn't really start reaching distributors and places where they could give the vaccine to people until about December 15th at the earliest. So between December 15th and December 31st, they have projected, I think, um, a bit ambitiously, um, or maybe over enthusiastically, that 20 million people would be vaccinated by the end of the month. Well, uh, the month. well obviously that hasn't happened. We're currently at around between nine and 10 million people, and it's January 13th. So we didn't make that mark. But not all states uh, have been, uh, so, so that was one of the issues. And then they looked at, well, why isn't it being given? Because the government is saying, well, we're rolling out vaccine, but it's not being given. And the states were saying, because they give the vaccine, the federal government controls all the vaccine, they give it to the state health departments, the health departments then distribute it to, to groups, hospitals, health settings, pharmacies that have been previously approved to administer the vaccine. And the degree to which that has been effective has varied tremendously across the United States. And what this map shows is that as of yesterday, the darker the color, the better the uh, rollout is going, uh, and the lighter the color, the worse it's going. So uh, states like North and South Dakota, which have very few people, by the way, <laughs> um, are doing a, a very good job. They have over 4% of their population already vaccinated. Um, and uh, some study, Maine and West Virginia are, are doing a job. Texas is in the upper third, I would say, um, but it's not as good as North Dakota. But remember, we have a lot of people in Texas. Um, as of yesterday, I believe I heard the governor yesterday, the day before, we have vaccinated um, close to 2 million people, I believe, Tommy, in Texas alone. Remember that nationally, we are getting close but haven't reached 10 million people. So Texas is a good chunk of those 9-something million uh, uh, total uh, vaccinations in the U.S. So we should be proud of that, but it's still not good enough. We got to do better. And, and, and there are a lot of things that are now being pushed out to make the process more expeditious and to get it faster to people and in the arms of people. And with that, I'll turn it over to Tommy. Thanks, George. Appreciate it. Um, so I, a lot of people have written in great questions, and we're just about to get to all of those. This was just a quick slide on uh, showing you the difference in effectiveness uh, of those two vaccines that are in the U.S. right now, both uh, look to be upwards to 95% effective, which, you know, compared to other vaccines is really, really good. You know, if you get your flu vaccine, you're lucky if it's 50% effective for that year. So uh, a highly effective uh, vaccine, and it looks, it looks to be uh, game-changing throughout this pandemic. So I'm going to start off with these questions because these are questions straight off of the CDC website. And these are commonly asked questions. So I figured let's just roll through a few of these and this probably will answer uh, a great number of questions that are that are being typed into our question bank. So, uh, you know, George alluded to this and talked about this. Can this COVID vaccine make me sick with COVID-19? And the answer is absolutely not. It certainly has the potential of, of having some side effects, feeling bad, slight fever, and we're gonna go over the side effects, but 
it cannot give you COVID-19 because there is no COVID-19 in the vaccine. It's not a live virus. It's not a dead virus, an inactive virus. It is just the protein on that outer surface of the virus. There's no viral DNA injected into your body. It cannot give you COVID-19. So, you know, you, and that's been a, an area of why many people are afraid to get the vaccine. Oh, well, I, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to get COVID from the shot. Please reassure yourselves, reassure your employees, reassure your family members. You cannot get COVID-19 from this vaccine. Okay. The second question off the CDC website is, after getting the COVID-19 uh, vaccine, will I test positive for COVID-19? Well, it's a great question, right? If I go get the shot and I go take a test, is the test going to be positive because I got the vaccine? And again, the answer is no, because of what I just told you in question number one, right? There's no viral DNA in this, in this vaccine. It's not going to give you the virus. If you happen to get the shot one day and go test positive the next day, it's because you, act, you have the virus uh, in your body, not because of the vaccine. Number three, if I have already had COVID-19 and I recovered, do I still need to get vaccinated? A great question, right? Many people will say, well, I, I had the virus, so I have antibodies in my, in, my, in my system, I'm protected. Well, not so fast, right? If you were to, to form antibodies from your infection, and that's an if, because we know not everybody will, if you have antibodies in your in your system because of an infection you had, what it looks like is those antibodies are not going to last long. We think around 90 days, and then those antibodies will start to drop off. So the answer to the question is yes. If you've had the virus and you've recovered from the virus, it does not matter. Get the vaccine. The vaccine is not going to do any damage. It has no no consequences from when you had a an active infection. Get the vaccine because what we know from the vaccine is it looks like the antibodies formed from the vaccine are going to last a long time. Do we know how long right now? We're not for certain. Moderna came out this week and said it looks like uh, their antibodies may be in your system for several years. Okay, so yes, get the vaccine, even if you've had COVID and you've recovered and you're in great shape, still go get the vaccine because we want you to be protected for a long, for a long period of time. Will the COVID vaccine alter my DNA? Absolutely not. Uh, the way that this virus is, I'm sorry, the way that the vaccine is made will not interact uh, with your DNA again. It's just tricking the body into thinking that those spikes are floating around in your body, okay? It does nothing to your own DNA. Uh, I had a family member ask me that, that same question, right? Uh, uh, but to answer it, no. Reassure your employees, reassure your, reassure your family members, does nothing to your body's DNA. This next question is, is, a, is, a, is a, a very important question. Really, the only contraindication to getting this vaccine is if you've had a severe allergic reaction to one of the ingredients in the vaccine. And those two ingredients uh, are, are uh, polyethylene glycol and po polysorbate. If, for, if by chance you know you had a severe reaction to one of those ingredients, 
the manufacturers and the CDC and the FDA say, don't get this vaccine. If you had a severe anaphylactic reaction to those ingredients or to uh, a previous vaccine that you've had, okay? If you've ever had a severe reaction and you've needed epinephrine, talk to your doctor before you get this vaccine. We know that there is a very rare 11 per 1 million doses chance that if you've had this had a previous reaction, there's a chance you might have a reaction to this vaccine. Any other medical issue that you've had is still okay to get this vaccine. And there's been a whole laundry list of, of, of conditions and medical problems that have been asked to the manufacturers and asked of, of the CDC and the FDA. Well, what if I have an autoimmune disease? Well, what if I have cancer and I'm undergoing chemotherapy? What if I have diabetes? What if I'm pregnant? What if this, what if this, what if this, what if this? And by all accounts, the recommendation is you can still get the vaccine. The only contraindication, true contraindication that you should probably not get the vaccine is if you've had a severe allergic reaction uh, to something in your past where you've needed epinephrine. And if that's the case, talk to your doctor about it. But more specifically, if you've had a severe reaction to a vaccine in the past, or specifically those ingredients, probably not a good idea to get that. Get this vaccine. George, you want to add anything? Yes. So um, what Tommy was mentioning about these other chronic conditions, if you have them, that it is safe to get the vaccine. So pregnancy, um, immunosuppressive diseases, cancer, chronic obstructive lung disease, et cetera, et cetera. Not only is it safe to get the vaccine, it is even more important that the folks with these conditions get the vaccine because they are at greater risk, including pregnant women, of not of getting infected, but if they do get infected, of having a bad outcome, of winding up in the hospital, in the ICU, on a ventilator, or dying. So it's not only not a contraindication of the vaccine if you have one of these conditions, it's all the more reason to get it. Thanks, George. So this is a good question too, you know, because a lot of people say, well, I'm going to wait because this is, this is a, new, a new vaccine. Well, it's a new vaccine, that's true, but the science behind mRNA vaccination and immunology is not new. They, you know, they, they have been studying this for many decades to get this science right. And uh, unfortunately, I guess you'd say, COVID-19 gave them a, a window of opportunity to use the science to, to, to put it into, into gear and to put it into action. But this is not new. They've been studying it for many years. The company Moderna was actually is actually a company that was designed to do nothing but mRNA research and mRNA uh, uh, production of vaccines. So it's 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 not new stuff. It's new uh, as a rollout in vaccinations, but it, the science has been studied for 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 decades actually. Can pregnant or breastfeeding mothers receive the vaccine? Yes, they can. There's no contraindication. Have there been long-term studies on, on pregnant ladies or breastfeeding uh, mothers? No, there has not. But by all accounts from, from what we do know and the science and the studying for, for many decades of this type of, of, of science, there appears to be, and I say appears, right? It appears to be no contraindication or no long-term effects for pregnant women or breastfeeding mothers.
adverse reactions. Here's the nice laundry list of, uh, of, of, of adverse reactions, possible adverse reactions. I took this from the Moderna website. So, you know, if you stick anybody anywhere with a needle, it's gonna hurt, right? So pain at the injection site um, uh, is 92%. Um, I will tell you, I had my vaccine a couple of weeks ago. It hurt after the, the second day, you know, it, it, was, it was painful. It lasted about a day, it went away. Uh, fatigue, some people may get, may feel, you know, their body tired and fatigued afterwards. Headache, muscle pain, joint pain, chills. That, those are the, the vast majority, the heavily weighted uh, side effects. And then as you get down lower in the list, yes, you may get a fever, you may get some chills, you may get some redness, uh, but you know, these are the these are the side effects, you know, you would get with the flu shot, you get with other uh, vaccinations. So there's really nothing out of the ordinary with the COVID-19 vaccine uh, side effects that, that are, are new and are abnormal. So let's talk about who right now has been advised they can get it, who has it been authorized to be given to. Uh, and let's first look at the federal guidelines. So the, the feds in the in the in the the committees in these different uh, organizations and this is from the advisory committee on immunization practices which recommends to the federal government who should get the vaccine so at a federal level they've 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 talked about phase 1a uh, 1b and looking at 1c so what the federal government does is says okay states Here's who we think you should give the vaccine to, and the and the states are 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 able to either take that recommendation or tweak it as they deem necessary. So the here's what the federal guidelines said, and for and for most states, most states said we're going to adhere to what uh, the government has, the federal government has told us. So if you were in phase one A, healthcare workers, residents of nursing homes, basically. And then you can see phase 1B and, and 1C. So if you look at phase 1B, the federal government said, we recommend anybody over 75 get the vaccine now and any frontline essential workers. Well, the state of Texas said, well, not so fast. We're going to change this up a little bit. And they decided in, in Texas, phase 1B would go to people 65 years or older are anybody above 16 with one of the chronic medical conditions. And, and they listed uh, some examples that I put there at the bottom of the list. It's not all, all inclusive, but they said, we want to vaccinate anybody over 65 and anybody with a chronic medical condition. And we're going to postpone essential workers for probably the next phase. And they haven't formally announced what the next phase is. So it, it, we've had many at the Health and Safety Council, we've had many essential workers call us and say, I'm an essential worker, I need to get my vaccine. Well, in the state of Texas, those doses have not been authorized yet. The only thing, the only vaccine doses that have been authorized in the state of Texas have been in 1A and 1B, which includes anybody over 65 and anybody with a chronic medical condition. We're all very hopeful that 1C will expand upon that and offer uh, essential workers those vaccines because I know many people on this webinar are interested in when can my workers 
get vaccinated. And I and we realize that if they haven't fit yet into 1A or 1B, that availability is just not there yet. But we're hoping soon. George, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, um, and, and you're absolutely correct that this is the way, this is when you look at the guidelines for the state of Texas, this is what they say. However, CDC is constantly <laughs> revising things and you know, they're under a tremendous amount of pressure to uh, get vaccine out there and get it out quicker than they're doing so far. And so yesterday morning, y'all may have seen that the CDC announced two things. Once, one is that uh, they were also now going to switch 1B to uh, people 65 and above, regardless of whether they're in great health or not. And people under 65 who uh, have uh, one of these chronic medical conditions. So they technically now match the Texas state guidelines as of yesterday. At the same time, there are caveats to these things because the state of Texas, and I think that the state is right, also says, Above all, don't waste a single dose of vaccine. Every dose you waste could potentially be, uh, or excuse me, the other way around, every dose you give could potentially be a life saved. So it's not uh, ethical, it's not moral to waste vaccine. So what happens if you know, you've know you scheduled a bunch of people to get the vaccine and at the end of the day, some people haven't shown up and you have leftover vaccine? What the state says is, at that point, unless you have people 1A and 1B still walking around, give it to whoever walks by and wants it. Some <laughs> unsuspecting individual walking down the hall, you grab them and you say, look, I have some leftover vaccine, you want it? And you give it to them. Because we don't want to waste vaccine. There have been horror stories already, not in Texas, I hope, but in some places where vaccine was wasted, either because it was not handled right or in one case in Wisconsin, so a pharmacist took it upon himself to uh, to uh, waste intentionally about 600 doses uh, for personal reasons or whatever. Um, we won't get into that. And there there have been other cases. We can't waste a single dose of vaccine. And so and, and we do that here at the university. You know, at the each vial of Moderna vaccine contains 10 doses. So each vial can vaccinate 10 people. If you've got two people left in a day and you have to open a vial, uh, that means either you're going to waste eight doses or you might want to say, well, why don't you come back tomorrow when we have and, and we'll start with you. And most people don't like to come back tomorrow. So that's, for example, when we will give those two doses and then run around finding somebody to give the other eight doses to. We, we don't waste vaccine. Exactly. And that leads to my next slide here. And, you know, th this is a great question is, well, how do some clinics have the vaccine and some don't? My, you know, my my primary care doctor doesn't doesn't have it, but this other doctor down the street. Well, there's there there's a lot of steps in 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 this vaccine process if you're a hospital or a clinic or, or a provider. And I, I just put some bullet points here so you'll understand what it took for for our clinic to be a a an approved vaccine distributor through the state. We had to do an application. We had to uh, uh, put what refrigerator we were going to put this in, what freezer we had, what was the serial number, how how we were going to log the temperatures in these refrigerators, what was the what was the calibration certificate number of those of those thermometers in the refrigerator, 
we had to then go through that approval process. You had to go through this process knowing that most likely I, I'm not going to make one penny off of these vaccines, okay? We cannot charge the patient one dime for these vaccines. And I see several people have written in, what's the cost? The cost is zero. The cost is zero. We have an obligation and 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 when we accepted the the approval to be a vaccine distributor, that was one of the 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 stipulations. You cannot charge the patient one dime. Whether or not they have insurance, no insurance, they're off the street, they're homeless. If they if if you are offering it to to the public, you cannot charge the patient anything. If they happen to have medical insurance, you can ask for their insurance and try to bill the insurance for something. But for the most part, clinics cannot charge anything to the to the patient. So for some clinics, that's a game changer, right? If if I have to use staff and 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 extra supplies and overtime, that may not be worth it to 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 that doctor or or that clinic. For us, it's you know it's it's a it's a, a community. Uh, endeavor that that we decided we were going to do, but it, it it's not easy. Storage restraints, as as George said, you know, you all heard the the the, the news stories of well, the Pfizer vaccine has to be kept on dry ice or ultra low freezers. Well, that's that's a game changer for any any standalone clinic. That, we don't have ultra low freezers, right? Hospitals do. Uh, we do not. A, 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 an ultra low freezer will cost you probably around fifteen thousand dollars each for an ultra low freezer. Uh, staffing restraints, you know, you have to have an additional set of staff just, just to administer these vaccines and just to log these vaccines in the state database. The state said you have to log them into their database within 24 hours. Once you puncture the vial, like, like George said, you have to use every dose in that vial within a few hours or you have to throw all the doses away. Rigorous scheduling, rigorous inventory process and a, and a whole staff devoted just to that. So when you ask, why does my doctor not have it or why does this clinic not have it? It's because it, it, it has several rigorous steps to, to, to assuring that those vaccines are not only acquired, but that you give them out in a proper method without ruining the vaccines or having to destroy them. Not an easy process. So you can see, even at a clinic level, it's not an easy process. So you can imagine what the states are going through, trying to coordinate millions of doses, uh, making sure they get to a clinic without ruining. So that that's the 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 gist of our formal presentation. So what I'm going to do now is uh, is is start going through our our Q and A and and hopefully knocking out some of these questions and there's several. So I think what I'm going to start with is the ones that people wrote in beforehand. Good question here. When do we anticipate the vaccine will be approved for children? George, you want to tackle that one? Right. So um, you're right. It is not currently approved for children and the two vaccines, children uh, under 16, the two vaccines um, have studied different age groups. So the Pfizer vaccine started off by looking at people 16 years of age and above, and that is what it's authorized for. But Moderna is only 18 and above. So when Tommy shows a slide saying the state guidelines 
uh, are to give vaccine to people 16 and over with a with a chronic condition, even though they're less than 65, that's fine. But if you've got the Moderna vaccine, you can't give it because it it's not approved for under 18. So it would have to be the Pfizer vaccine, for example. Um, Pfizer has already, has already, you know, those, those studies that led to the authorization by the FDA did not stop. They are continuing. They're still watching these folks. And actually, Pfizer has expanded its age range and is already studying children 12, age 12 and above. So very soon we will have uh, data on children uh, 12 and above. And there are other studies that are looking, beginning to look at younger age groups. The good thing here, though, is, uh, and this is typical, this is not specific to the COVID-19 vaccine, this is typical in vaccine research. Because children are vulnerable, you typically don't study them until the very end, uh, when you've made sure that it is safe in adults and in teenagers and whatnot, and then you keep going down the, the age scale. But on the other hand, the children won't probably won't have to wait as long as the rest of us had to wait between when these vaccines were first developed in March, April, and when we actually got them, because um, they don't have to do the same full-scale studies as they do for adults. What they do is they test it in smaller groups, and if they see that the vaccine is being tolerated as well and is as effective in these smaller groups in, of children as they were in adults, they, uh, I forget what the, there's a term in vaccine, it's um, like cross-validation or something like that. It, not exactly that, but there is a way that you can say, look, what we've seen is it's behaving exactly the same way as in adults. We don't need to do uh, a huge trial like we did for the adults. We'll just take that experience. We're seeing it in kids. Let's go ahead and approve it for kids. And that's what we're probably going to be seeing in the next coming months. Thank you, George. Next question was, will the vaccine prevent a person from spreading COVID-19 to others, and I, I'll, I'll tackle it up, up front and say that you, the, the studies that they did for this vaccine, we're not looking at that. So I think the answer right now is we don't know, and we think you probably will will be able to to spread that virus even if you've had the vaccine. You know what the vaccine was meant to do was protect you and prevent you from dying. Uh, I think they're looking at it ongoing to see well. If I, I had the vaccine, I, I catch the virus, my body's gonna fight it off. I'm never, I may never even know I had the virus, but between then, that, that window, can I still be contagious? And uh, I think the, the, the general consensus looks like, well, it, it's possible. That's why you still have to wear the mask, even if you've become vaccinated. George, you wanna add anything? I think I would add, and you're right. Um, we don't know the answer to that. The only couple of things I would add is Moderna did take a preliminary look at that in its own data, and it does appear that it does reduce the risk of inf of transmitting infection. Again, this is infection that you won't get because you're protected by the vaccine, but you still may be around somebody and carry the virus and you might spread it. So the Moderna vaccine in early analysis suggests it does do that. It's not that they're, they haven't looked at it. They, they haven't but it's not that they won't be looking at it. So the, the data are there for analyzing it, both Pfizer and Moderna, and we should have an answer to that pretty soon, I hope. Um, but they, they weren't required to show that for the FDA authorization, so they sort of pushed that analysis a little bit farther down the road, but they've got the data to, to look at and analyze. You know, and, and that furthers the question of, you know, well, if I get the vaccine, can I stop wearing the mask? Well, I think the answer right now is no. And, that, and then moreover, that's gonna be probably dictated by your state 
or your local ordinance. I mean, even if you say I had the vaccine and the, and the state law is you have to wear a mask, it, it really doesn't matter. You're going to have to wear the mask. Uh, I know Dr. Dr. Fauci had mentioned previously to, you know, when somebody asked him, when, when do you think we'll not have to be wearing masks? And he said, maybe by the fall, assuming a lot of people get vaccinated. So, so we'll see how that goes. Um, the question was about if somebody's taking blood thinners, can they get this vaccine? And the answer is yes. Uh, taking blood thinners is, is not a contraindication to, uh, to, to, to the vaccine. But they may ask, why do we get, why are people asking me about this when I get the vaccine? The only reason we ask about whether you're on the blood thinner is uh, so that the nurse that gives you the, the vaccination can just watch you maybe a little bit longer or maybe apply more pressure uh, than they would otherwise, simply because people with on, on blood thinners tend to bleed a little bit more. And it's not dangerous. You just put more pressure and you watch them a little bit longer. That's the only reason, but not because it's a contraindication to getting vaccinated. Expected timing for the AstraZeneca vaccine approval in the U.S. Have you seen any updated timelines for that? Uh, no, I mean, the, the trials are, uh, it's a great question for many reasons, but uh, the trials are still ongoing. Um, we should probably know something in the next month or so. Uh, there have been some results leaked, but they've been leaked mainly through the press, and I would caution people to be wary of the press. Uh, you know, Pfizer and Moderna have an advantage over AstraZeneca is that they have already gone through these hoops and they presented all of their data was needed to get the authorization. AstraZeneca has not been given that chance. And so you're going to see stories uh, in the press saying, well, it's a lot less effective than Moderna it's, uh, and, and Pfizer. They're not 95%. You, you see some places where it says AstraZeneca is between 60 and 90%. Um, and, and we just need to wait for, for the actual data to come out. And, and uh, the other reason it's interesting to ask that question is because there's an ethical issue. Let's say you are a participant in the AstraZeneca study. And remember, these studies are done what's called blinded. Neither the doctor nor the patient know if they got the vaccine or they got a placebo. That's called a double-blind study. And that's the way it's done. But now you've got these folks that have participated. They got two shots of something. They don't know what. But now there's all this other vaccine available. You know, maybe they want to get that vaccine, but I don't want to get the vaccine if I, it turns out I got the, the actual, the real vaccine. And so the AstraZeneca study and some others are going through this, uh, a little bit of soul searching uh, as to what to do with these folks. And they're beginning to unblind, in other words, tell people what they got and what they didn't get, especially the placebo group. Yeah. And for the placebo group, they have the option of getting the AstraZeneca vaccine, even though it's not approved because that was part of the study design. If it was shown to be effective and you had received placebo, you were offered the, the real vaccine or they can get one of the other ones. Um, hopefully that won't blunt the, the studies. Um, but anyway, uh, and the other point I want to make, Tommy, is, is something you mentioned, you know, that 95% efficacy is outstanding. And the way human nature is, now everybody thinks that anything less than 95% is useless, right? <laughs> and yet we still recommend the flu shot, which as you very well said, you know, it's nowhere near 90. It's, it, it's 70 in a good year and 45 in a bad year percent effective. And yet we still push it, right? Because at a population level, preventing half of the cases of flu is a big deal. But here, if you prevent 95, it's a bigger, but that doesn't always work with all vaccines. You know, we're, we're not setting a new standard and everything less than 95 is baloney. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be careful. 
I did see where Moderna now is looking at looking at this science and and going to study it on on flu vaccines. So, you know, maybe there maybe there's a good chance for a better flu shot. Uh, good question here. My my question is, how long after getting the vaccine are you considered immune? Great question. Uh, the 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 vaccine manufacturers, at least the Moderna one that I that I saw, says after about two weeks, they think you're about 50 percent. Uh, uh, protected, and then after the second dose is when it boosts up to to 95% uh, effective. I will say that I got my shot two weeks ago. I was telling George that I, I tested myself with an antibody test a couple of days ago, and it already showed that long that long term IgG antibody in my body, which is a great sign. Um, so I, at some level, after two weeks, I know that I've got those antibodies floating around in my body. So it looks like pretty quickly after two weeks, you already have some level of, of protection should you be exposed to the virus. And I've gotten my two doses of the Pfizer and I just happenstance, I w I'm in an antibody study at the university dating back to May. And when I got tested for antibodies back in May, I was negative. And my second round was this last Monday. So it's about a week after I got my second and final dose and I'm positive too. Wow, that's great. It works, it works, it works. That's, that's a great sign. Uh, several questions came in about, you know, if, if you are a, an employer and you want your employees vaccinated, how is that going to work, right? Well, that's that's going to be tricky, you know. If you've if you've got an occupational clinic that you use, and they happen to be an approved distribution clinic, then you would have to work directly with them to see if they were if they are going to open that up for people to come to their clinic to get vaccinated or if they are going to open it up for on-site vaccinations. You, you, as you could see from, the, from, where was it? This slide, that process is not easy. It has to be very carefully organized and scheduled. You know, th this is not a vaccine where you can, you can call five minutes before and say, hey, I, I, you know, I, I'm stuck in traffic, I'm gonna come tomorrow. There may not be a dose for you tomorrow. You know, it, it, it's a very rigorous scheduling. So uh, I would encourage you to work with your, your clinic, your occupational clinic, if you have one to figure out, do they have the vaccine first? Because most likely they don't right now. And if they do, how are they going to disseminate that to essential workers? I, I'm sure there will be a, a quantity restraint on that because it's just not open-ended of how many doses you can get from the state. Uh, but you know, communicate with that occupational clinic and see what, what the, uh, the availability is. Uh, you know, I have a question for you. Um, so we know that you know one of the slides that you showed talked about non-healthcare but essential workers, and I know that at least some sectors in the energy sector are considered essential workers. And I also know that some energy companies are already offering vaccine to right. their uh, employees because they are essential workers, non-healthcare but essential workers. Um, is construction considered essential? It is. And are you, so, um, well, I know the guidelines are constantly changing. And so the essential, the non-healthcare essential workers have moved down a little bit on the list, but when the time comes, will you be able to vaccinate them because of that? Because you guys see a lot of construction workers. Yes, the, the, yes, the, the answer is yes, we will, assuming we have the doses to do it. So well, yes, absolutely. We. We we hope to be able to offer that to to essential workers. Um, we at the Health and Safety Council and, and, and the Global Health Clinic haven't haven't 
you know, honed in on how that's gonna how that's gonna work. If we're gonna offer it in our in our clinic, if we're gonna only offer it on site, or, or a combination of both, we just don't know. You know how how we want to be able to to vaccinate as many essential workers as we can, right? That's the goal. But you know, you can tell from that last slide that I show, it's it's a cumbersome process, and it has to be done very efficiently with great organizational process. So it, it, it's something that we have to really uh, look at and, and figure out how we're going to do it. Because, you know, we like you say, we service tens of thousands of people every month. And how are we going to even come close to, to you know, vaccinating a fraction of that of that many people? We just, we, we don't know how that looks right now. Keep yes. the will. We will vaccine. Yes, exactly. Uh, okay, let's see here. Uh, trying to see, just w wondering about the long-term effects of the vaccine, right? And we get that question a lot. Well, we we know short-term it looks great, right? We vaccinated millions of people now, but what about 10 years from now? What about 20 years from now? How do we know and how can we be certain I'm not going to grow that third eye 10 years from now? Uh, George, what would you say about that? So, um, yeah, I mean, these studies are going to be dragged out for many years to look for that. However, if we look at previous experience with other vaccines of any type, when they followed, uh, and there have historically been issues with long-term effects with some vaccines. So, for example, not now, but in the 1970s, our version of what we had the flu, uh, what the flu shot was, the flu vaccine was back then, actually did lead to some cases of a condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is, uh, it's actually a paralysis, a type of paralysis um, that people got. Uh, very few, but they did get them, and they, it was attributed to the vaccine, the way the flu shot was done now. Now the technology is completely different. Um, but when you go back and look at those experiences of long-term effects, they're long-term because once they're in, they sit in, they, they, they don't go away, right? They're chronic. But the majority of those cases, well over 95% of those cases, they arose within the first two months after getting the vaccine. So they popped up within those first two months, and then they continued. And so that was the reasoning behind why the FDA, in order to authorize the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, said, we're not just going to take it at your word. We want to see at least two months of data to make sure this thing is safe. And it was based in part on the fact that if we're going to see some long-term effects, most of them will pop up during that period of time. Is it an absolute? No, we, we need to continue looking at it. But the fact that they made it to the two months and there were no long-term effects is a good sign. Not the whole story, but a good sign. Uh, let's see here. Again, a, a question, several questions on, you know, vaccinating workers. Can I mandate this for my for my workforce to, to, to to get the vaccine, you know, it, OSHA says, if you're subject to OSHA, OSHA says you have a responsibility as an employer to assure a safe workplace, right? And do all you can. Uh, I, I did see Dr. Dr. Fauci was asked that question and he said recently that he thinks certain industries and sectors probably will uh, mandate that. He's, he even, he said to hospitals may, certain, certain business industries, you know, so I, I think the answer is yes, you probably can mandate it. I will tell you that, you know, this is not an FDA approved 
vaccine. This is an authorized vaccine under the emergency use, use authorization. So certain uh, legal opinions have been, well, I don't, you know, we probably shouldn't mandate something that is not approved yet. And I think George, your, your hospital probably had the same thought. Right. I mean, the, the, the default is under an EUA, under emergency use authorization, you cannot mandate the vaccine. I've seen those legal arguments that there are some rare exceptions, but you really have to make a strong case. And I, as far as I know, nobody's done it. Once it is approved, which is the next step, then you can do pretty much anything you want, as long as you can justify it. And I do, I agree with you. I expect not only will certain businesses require uh, to be vaccinated like hospitals, but even if it's not work, there may well be airlines that require proof of vaccination before they allow you on their on their plane. I know that Qantas, the Australian airline, is already preparing for that. So they will require uh, vaccination. Or yeah, another. absolutely. And if you've if you've had the vaccine, uh, you know that you will get a, a CDC vaccination card that tells you, you know, on the card, it's it's what dose you got, uh, what the manufacturer was, Moderna or Pfizer at this time. When you got the second dose, and that that's your that's your card to show you you got the vaccine. Should somebody ask, uh, a question was, well, if, if I'm an employer and I send my employee to get the vaccine, who pays for it? Nobody pays for it. It's a free vaccine. No matter where you go, it's a free vaccine. Now, if you happen to have a clinic that goes on site to give the vaccine, that clinic uh, may may charge you for the staffing fees associated with going on your site, but they cannot charge you for the actual vaccine. The state has said you cannot charge for the vaccine. A question was asked, you know, this gentleman has an autoimmune uh, disease. He's got bad reactions in the past to the flu shot. Should I still get the COVID vaccine? And, and by all accounts, I, will, I would first ask, what was the bad reaction to the flu, to the flu shot? But assuming it was it was mild, you know, uh, mild and you know is relevant, right? But if fever and, and chills and fatigue, you know, it, it you probably still should get the COVID vaccine. You know, the only the only true contraindication is if you ever had to have epinephrine, you had an anaphylactic reaction where you couldn't breathe and you you know uh, you know you almost died basically. But any other milder reaction or or chronic medical condition should not be a reason why you don't get the vaccine. Definitely want to talk to your doctor or the person that's going to be giving you the vaccine so they better understand what happened in the past. But assuming it was a it was a milder type reaction, you 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 probably should still consider getting that vaccine. Uh, it is it required to take the vaccine? Can employ employers, you know, make you take the vaccine? I think we just we just answered that one. Uh, let's see. I, I, this person wrote in, George, back when you were on your 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 testing versus cases uh, graph, and I, I, they asked, how are cases determined if not by tests? No, they, they are determined by tests. So what I was comparing is the number of tests that were done. So uh, people who administer tests keep account of how many tests they've actually done, whether negative or positive. And then of those tests that they've done, they look at how many of them were positive. And right. so on this slide, the orange line is how many of those tests were positive? And the blue line is how many tests were done? If the two lines are parallel, 
that means that any increase in positive tests is probably due to more testing. But if they separate like they are here, and the orange line is increasing faster than the blue line, that tells you that regardless of how many tests are done, there is real increased uh, infection in the community. Right. So, yeah. So the case is the orange line is is based on the test, based on the on the on the on the blue line. I think that that was confusing for that one person. Uh, OK, this was a question on the PCR test and and I'll, I'm going to try to interpret it. But, you know, we've heard that, you know, the PCR amplifies the the virus so it is seen better in the machine that's running the test now this person was at, was asking was thinking that the that the PCR test multiplied the number of viruses so it may interpret a a test positive when there was really no virus to begin with and and that's not the case with the PCR the PCR just lights it up it amplifies it so it it it's, it picks up it sees more of the virus that's there. It does not create virus that's not there. Is that pretty accurate, George? Okay. Can I get a copy of the slideshow? Absolutely. This will be available to everybody on uh, on this webinar today. We'll send you that link where you can watch the whole episode again and you can see all of the different slides. Definitely. Uh, okay, I'm gonna skip this one here. Yes, they will be shared. A uh, good qu uh, question here was on the flu shots. Where does the flu shot fit into the category? And it may may have been answered on uh, you know to this person on one of your slides. Is it an inactivated virus shot? You're asking me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it depends on the type of flu shot, right? So there is a live attenuated um, virus, which is the nasal um, flu vaccination, which we don't use. We use it sometimes in kids. And then the others are all attenuated. All right. I'm just kind of reading as we go here. Uh, any, this was a, uh, it's a good question. Uh, this person that had read where the vector type of vaccine potentially increases your risk to other diseases. Is that true? Have you heard that? Well, you know, the, the fact that you're using another virus as your transportation bus uh, would always raise that question. I mean, theoretically, the, the adenovirus, the virus that they use have been are harmless to begin with. So that shouldn't occur. But I think each, there are so many different types of viral vector vaccines that are being developed that that's certainly an important question to look at. I haven't heard of it so far, that it increases yep. your, your predisposition to other infections, but it's certainly something to look at. Uh, good question here, you know, and a person said, well, you know, if we're, if we're congregating people to get the vaccine, is that not going to be considered a, a super spreader event, you know, and, and it's a, it's a valid point, you know, I, I think, I think several, you know, large venue uh, or large distribution centers are keeping you in your car and it's a drive-through, but, you know, no matter where you get it, you want to make sure you're still adhering to that six-foot distancing and wearing your mask and wash keep you know keeping your hands sanitized because you know if, if those things aren't followed and you're in a big group and even if you're in line getting a vaccine you know it does definitely put you at risk so you know you want to make sure you're you're adhering to all of the precautions like you normally would and i would add to that that we also screen people before they get their vaccine 
and, one, and two, we ask them two questions. In the last 10 days, have you had a positive COVID test? Mm-hmm. Or in the last 14 days, have you been around somebody that was positive and you were you know, in close contact? If they answer yes to either of those two questions, we turn them around and reschedule and get them right. out of there before they actually hit the room where the vaccine is being administered. And, and, and great, and that, and that leads to a, a different question in that you know, the question is often asked, well, I tested positive five days ago and I'm scheduled to get the vaccine. Can I get the vaccine still? And the, the technical answer is yes, you can get the vaccine, but you should not be in a clinic when you have an active infection uh, of COVID-19. So like George said, we're gonna turn you away because you're sick not because you can't technically get the vaccine and you know have the vaccine in your body the, the manufacturers have said you know that would still that would technically be okay the vaccine would still work but you should not be out in the public standing in line at a clinic when you know you're sick or infecting my workers <laughs> we're getting shots yeah exactly. but it's 10 days it, it is 10 days there's been a, a lot of confusion as to whether you had to wait 3 months maybe we can talk about that a little bit uh, Tommy because that's one of the confusing things, you know, we, we, all of us now know people who have had COVID. So it's not like it's the unusual thing. It's actually the common thing. Um, and so uh, at the very beginning, there were questions as to whether people who have had COVID, if they should wait three months, 90 days before getting the vaccine. And CDC had toyed with that originally. This is back in September that they had toying with this. The reason for that was not because it was harmful to them to get the vaccine. It was thought that because we know that having the infection does make you immune for a while, we don't know how long, but at least three months, that by not giving those people the vaccine, it would free up vaccine for other people who had not had infection. That has all changed. It's too difficult to do that. So now it's really only just get past the acute infection, which we know in the majority of people is 10 days. And then if you're okay after that, you can get the vaccine. However, if you had COVID in the last 90 days and you were treated with what's called a monoclonal antibody or plasma as part of the treatment, then uh, we wait 90 days. So it's, it's important to ask, have you had it in the last 90 days? And if you did, did you get a monoclonal antibody or, or plasma? Because then we'll make we'll, we'll we'll have you wait 90 days before you get the vaccine. Otherwise, if you just had a run-of-the-mill COVID infection, 10 days, not contagious, recovered, you can get the vaccine. I'm going to skip to this slide of yours, George, because the next question is, uh, mm-hmm. what are the target cells that the uh, that this vaccine targets? So what what the, the cells that you're interested, I mean, once you inject it, they pretty much go anywhere in the body, right? But the ones that you're really interested uh, in uh, is uh, are those cells in our body that generate antibodies. Mm-hmm. And so those are called B cells. It's a type of white blood cell, uh, um, it's a type of lymphocyte. And they're the ones that make antibodies. There are also other types of immune cells called T cells that don't manufacture antibodies but they do rely on antibodies to generate their immune response. So the, the quick answer is it may go all over the body. I don't care if it latches onto my ear or my skin. What I'm really interested in is it latches onto these immune, these antibody generating white blood cells. You know, and this a good slide here, and, and you know, it's it, if it's ever piqued your interest of why do these things have to be frozen so low of a temperature and why, can you only use them at, you know, you can only, you have to use them within a few hours. It's because of that 
lipid uh, uh, protective uh, barrier around that uh, around that nanoparticle. And if that lipid barrier busts, it's it's ruined. So they have to keep them very very cold, and they're on a tight timeline um, uh, to be used. Very fragile. <clears throat> Does someone? who has been vaccinated still need to quarantine if exposed to somebody between the first and second dose? Yeah, uh, right now, um, those are the instructions. I think that eventually when enough people are vaccinated and we learn more, we will find that we will, I mean, that's why you get vaccinated, right? To be protected, um, that we will uh, lift those restrictions progressively. However, because of what Tommy said before, since we don't know if you can transmit it, if you were exposed to somebody else who was positive and you got vaccinated, you're going to be protected, but you might be carrying the virus and you might spread it to others. So that's the rationale right now until we know more. We're following the exact same procedures that we would otherwise follow if, you know, in terms of quarantine if you've been exposed. Uh, good question here. Uh, we may have alluded to it a little bit. Do we think this vaccine is going to be a one-time deal or are we going to have to get it every year like the flu shot? Uh, like I said earlier, Moderna came out this week and said they think we'll be protected with their vaccine at least for for at least a full year, if not if not more. The the it looks really strong, in the the uh, the, the protection, but I think only time will tell. Let's see. If you receive only one shot and the second shot is delayed, can the first shot be effective enough to protect you? I think right now the 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 answer is it it de definitely does have some layer of protection after the first dose. Uh, what the manufacturers have said is that if you if your second dose is delayed, it, it's okay. You get the second dose whenever you can get the second dose, right? If that's six months later, still get it so you can have that ex that that ninety five percent layer of of protection. But yes, you you will have some layer. They think it's around fifty percent protection after the first dose. Let's see here. I'm skipping through here. What is a normal required amount of time to develop a vaccine in order to see if there's any long-term effects? Um, George, you wanna, you wanna tackle that one? How, if somebody's rolling out a, a standard vaccine in a non-pandemic year, What's the timeline that they go through to to get that approved and, and know if long-term effects are going to be an issue? Right. So so it's not a required timeline. It's just reality. Um, traditionally developed vaccines required many, many years to prove that they were effective. And, you know, typically 10 years or more. The difference with the mRNA vaccines is, well, let, let me backtrack. And so a lot of those 10 years were spent developing the, the vaccine prototype and you know trying with a this should work and then you find out it doesn't work and you try something else you make it some tweaks to it until you get to a prototype that may be effective or looks like it's going to be effective and then you put it through its paces through different types of trials in animals or uh you know um in uh healthy human volunteers what are called phase one and phase two trials and then you get to the phase three trials and historically, traditionally, that's been done in a very sequential manner. And that's what really lengthens the whole process. Well, the pandemic, um, as, as Tommy was saying, you know, there is a 
somewhat of a silver lining on a black cloud that the pandemic has offered is it's really pushed us to be innovative in terms of how we can accelerate this process without sacrificing science or quality or safety. And so the first thing that's, that's very different, you know, if you take a viral vector vaccine or a live attenuated vaccine, they, they play around for a long time with these viruses till they get it just right before testing. Well, with the mRNA vaccines, you will know the genome se uh, sequence of a virus within a day or two. And I'm not talking just about coronavirus, because this, this technology is going to start being applied to other infections. They'll know what it is. And within a day or two, they'll know what piece of it makes it unique. And then they can synthetically develop that mRNA to attack that specific, that unique part in days. I mean, from the time that the genome sequence of the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that's responsible for COVID, was identified, until they had generated that mRNA, we are talking about a week, one week, not years. So the prototype was developed in no time at all. And then they started putting it through the different phases. Phase one and phase two, they went through it quickly because those are, they don't require a lot of people, so you can go through them quickly. And then the phase three was, was started up. So that shortened it a lot. And the other thing that shortened it compared to traditional approaches is usually, you know, it's one thing for it to have a laboratory that develops the vaccine, but most labs don't know how to make it. They just know how to, you know, invent it, develop it, test it. But at some point, somebody's got to manufacture the vaccine in large numbers, and that's going to be manufacturing companies. And usually those manufacturing companies, because they are in it for a profit, at least, at least to break even, if not better, right, to make a profit, They've been very cautious with saying, we're going to start getting ready to manufacture this, because, but, but we don't know if that vaccine is going to work. And so they would wait. And then when all the phase three trials are finished, then they would get into production. Well, the, the Operation Warp Speed, one of the good things that it's done, in my opinion, is that it has accelerated. That it basically, the government said, look, manufacturers, we're, you need to bet on one of these vaccines that it's going to work. And you need to start gearing up right now, even before we have all the results, so that you are ready to crank this out as soon as that authorization is given. You're not going to wait. You're going to have to crank it up. And um, that's that saved an enormous amount of time. So, and think about it. The Pfizer vaccine was approved, was authorized on December 10th, 2020, and it was first administered to somebody outside of a clinical trial on December 15th. In five days, it went from being authorized to being distributed. That means those production systems had to be in place and working. And so that, that really shortened the time period without sacrificing safety, because we're just talking about the ability to make it. You've already proven that it's safe. That's a good point. A question wrote in, and this is about testing positive and, and quarantining, and they, they wrote in, this person tested positive on one day, two weeks later, still testing positive. Can they go out into society again? And, you know, the, the CDC did away with their repeat testing recommendation because what to this person's, you know, point, if you do that PCR test, you may be positive for three months later, you know, so the, the CDC did away with repeat testing as a recommendation. And they said, if you, if you quarantined for or isolated for, for 10 days, you have no more symptoms. You are you are thought to be non-contagious anymore. You can go out into the world. Mm -hmm. uh, good questions about 
rapid antibody testing. They said, if you, if you get the vaccine, will you test positive on an antibody test? Yes, you will. That it, you should, right, if, if the vaccine works, uh, because that is what an antibody test is for, is to see if you have the antibodies from either an infection or from the vaccine. So yes, you should test positive. That's what you wanna see. You wanna see that long-term IgG antibody flash up positive on that test to indicate you've got some immunity. Um, the question, the follow-up question to that was, well, what's the difference between an antibody test and an antigen test? Two total different things. An antibody test looks to see if you have antibodies from an infection or now the vaccine, if you have some protection against that virus. The antigen test is to see if you have active virus in your body at that time. The antigen test will not be positive, should not be positive because of the vaccine. If the antigen test, antigen test is positive, it means you're sick. You've got a, you've got an infection right then. Uh, so great question, two different things, antibody test versus antigen test. Excellent. Let me get rid of those. Uh, let's see. Again, the, the recommendation for, for children and infants, there is no recommendation right now because it has not been fully studied. So uh, children and infants are, are not on the authorized list to, to get these vaccines yet. Uh, they're working on them. They're starting off with adolescents and looking at adolescents, and then they'll probably start moving down the, the age groups and, and studying those. But for right now, no recommendation to get the vaccine for kids. Uh, let's see here from our old friend, Dr. Carson, <laughs> giving us a uh, giving us a, a, an opinion on one of the slides there. Let's see, what phase of immunization is recommended for home health services? Um, wow. I, I believe it's the, uh, it was the first group. The long-term residents? I, I would say it is because yeah, it was, uh, they, yeah residents of long-term care facilities, uh, most home health, a lot of home health is long-term care. It just doesn't happen to take place in a nursing home. So uh, I do know that for example, the folks that care for my mom at home have all been offered the vaccine at the very beginning. Let's see, uh, let's see, I think we've answered this one here. So again, a lot of questions about the cost. There is no cost for the vaccine. If, if somebody is charging you for the vaccine, it, they, they should not be doing that. Uh, the, the vaccine is free to clinics from the state. The federal government bought them. They pass them free to the clinics. The clinics uh, should not be charging anybody for the vaccine. They can bill the insurance company, health insurance companies for an administration fee. And the, and the insurance companies are not supposed to pass that on as part of a deductible or part of a copay. Co the insurance company is either gonna pay the doctor for that or, or not. Nothing what, should be passed on to the patient. Right, and these administration fees, we're talking about pennies really 15 to 20 bucks something like that a lot of places for example our university didn't even ask for insurance information because it's not worth the paperwork what they reimburse so um, but a lot of places are and smaller clinics can uh, you know charge the uh, or bill the insurance company for those 10 or 15 bucks and multiply it over a period of time they amount to something but the important thing is and Tommy you alluded to this 
that doesn't mean that these vaccines are not being given at a cost. And the cost is actually to the administrator of the vaccine because a nurse that you have devoted to giving the vaccine in many of these smaller operations is a nurse that has been taken away, pulled from his or her usual job. So that's a cost. That's, a, that, that's really a service that that organization is providing because they're pulling them from somewhere else, unless they're able to hire on a lot of temporary personnel to do just the vaccination, and then it costs them too, right? Definitely. And, you know, they, they, you know they're, they're also being administered or offered at, in some capacity through, through cities, you know, through your health department. So, you know, by all means, you know, look, look on those websites and see. I know the city of, city of Houston has, uh, has appointments you can make. You know, once they're gone, they're gone, right? But, the, but the, you should definitely continue to look at your local health departments to see what's available straight through them. Uh, a good question about the storage, the cold storage. Yes, they 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 have very strict guidelines of, of of how long they are good for after you remove them from cold storage, and it's and it's hours. Mm -hmm. Once we take them out of the of the freezer or the refrigerator, uh, they're only good for a certain amount of time, and that's yeah. why we you know we have to we have to use them quickly, you know, and and uh, if they're not used that day, we have to throw them in the trash, and that's wasted doses. Uh, let's see here. So a follow-up question on the storage temperatures. The, the Pfizer vaccine is the one that has to be in that ultra cold storage. Uh, the Moderna one can be kept at in a refrigerator unopened for one month. After a month, we have to throw it in the trash. But once we puncture that vial and, and draw up the first dose, we have to use all of those doses within I want to say it's six hours or 12 hours or somewhere in there. So we have to use it that day. And if, if we puncture a vial and only one person shows up that day, we have to throw all nine other doses from that vial in the trash, which is no something nobody wants to do. So that's why we scramble to find people to, to use up all of those doses. Let's see. Uh, let's see here. Do you know what the adjuvant is in the vaccine? This was a question. Yeah, so um, there are several uh, components. Uh, if I don't have them all memorized, uh, but if you go to the m website and you put FDA Moderna fact sheet or FDA Pfizer fact sheet, one of the questions is what are the components? Most of them have never been known to generate an allergic reaction. There is one called polyethylene glycol that is used in both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, that there are some rare instances of allergy to it. Um, there is another component that is not present in these vaccines, but is present in others called polysorbate. And the reason Tommy showed the, or listed that one in addition to the polyethylene glycol, because sometimes people who have allergies to polysorbate have a cross allergic reaction, cross-reactivity with uh, polyethylene glycol. But polyethylene glycol is something that we use a lot. If anybody has ever had a colonoscopy, that stuff that you drink, that horrible stuff that you drink to prep for the colonoscopy is PEG. It's a polyethylene glycol. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to close this one here. Um, we have a population of uh, 
no, it, this question was asking about no formal immigration status. Immigration status has 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 no bearing on if you get this vaccine or not. Okay, uh, we don't ask for verification of of, of status. Uh, there are questions that we have to have because we have to enter that data into the state logging system, but it has nothing to do with immigration status. So, so do not let that be a hindrance uh, for any population group. Uh, we don't care where you're from. The CDC doesn't care where you're from. Uh, they want you to get vaccinated. So do, you know, please, please get vaccinated when you can. Any suggestions where a healthcare worker such as myself can get vaccinated? Uh, you know, it, it, it's not easy right now. I, you know, I get it. I, I would say certainly reach out to the, the county health departments, your city health departments. The, uh, the CDC and the state did issue that list of all providers in, in the state that, that have the vaccine. But I will tell you, as somebody wrote in, that doesn't mean they have it for, for everybody and for the general population. We're on that list, you know, we, we, we receive doses, but we only receive the doses for our own, for our own uh, staff. So when you call us and you say, hey, I saw you on the list, you've got the vaccine. Well, no, we don't, you know, we, we, we got the first allotment just for our, our, our staff, uh, but, but I would still say to, to use those references as much as you can and just keep calling, calling and jump on there when, when, if the, if the county health department says we're going to be open at 9 a.m. online to to get those, be there at 8:50, refreshing your screen to to try to to try to jump on there. I know we're over our our time limit, but but George, if you've got an appointment, let me know. But I'm going to keep rambling through some of these questions and. Yeah, I do have to teach class here in a little bit, but okay. keep going. For now. Oh, those students can wait. Uh, okay, we talked about that one. Talked about this one. Uh, Dr. Delcos mentioned about not wasting doses and in, in institutions giving them to anybody that's available. Is there a list? Is there a sign-up sheet? You know, from no, I wish there was. And when I say I give it to anybody, it's given to anybody we find in our institution, right? You really don't know that until the end of the day. And so, um, you know, we will uh, we'll run around looking for folks but it's not something that you can get on a wait list for by staying. It's not like getting on a plane when people used to get on planes, uh, being on the standby list. Um, but uh, yeah, we try not to waste any of those. We will typically give it to our employees and students. Mm -hmm. uh, good question. At an industrial facility, do our EMS personnel uh, qualify as healthcare providers? In my mind, they do. I mean, I, I think they're frontline healthcare workers. They're going to be running to somebody giving mouth to mouth you know, or treating somebody who's sick, then it, uh, absolutely they, they would qualify. They are first responders, so they qualify. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, a good, a good, you know, a good point was somebody said, you know, it looks like a lot of the side effects of, of the COVID vaccine are similar to the, the side effects of the COVID virus, fever and chills and fatigue. That's true. You know, you, you just have to know if you got it within a first, you know, a couple of hours or first day of getting the vaccine, most likely it's related to the vaccine, but it's a good, it's a good point. Uh, but some of those are, are definitely different. Uh, do you anticipate additional vaccines will be approved? Yes, I think by all accounts, you know, uh, Johnson & Johnson is still on the list to, to submit to the FDA uh, and a couple of others. Blood type in, in COVID. Any definitive studies on if one blood type protects you more than others? 
Well, uh, there's some evidence that group uh, O, uh, it is less, so, so people who um, get the COVID infection are less likely to be blood type O, but the reasons aren't really known. And it may be what an epidemiologist just call an association, uh, meaning it's not necessarily a cause and effect. It's being looked at to see what might be the explanation. But for right now, it just all we know is that they're less likely to get it, but we don't know the reason why. And probably once they look at it a little bit more and look at other explanations, it might disappear as a factor. But for right now, yeah, it's still holding up last time I checked, which was a while ago. Uh, here's a question right up your alley. Uh, and I put the slide up here to, to show the list, but the question was, does asthma qualify for a, as a chronic condition under phase 1B? <laughs> It does, but it's in a second category. So CDC has two categories, class one and class two. What you're seeing here on the screen are the class one. And by the way, it's diabetes is now type one and two diabetes for class one. And then you've got some other conditions in class two and asthma is there. And how do they use that information? It's like a moving target, but originally the idea was that people, if you had one condition in this class one list that's here, that can, you were considered to have a comorbidity but you had to have at least two from the other list to qualify. And all of that's sort of going by the wayside right now. Um, but yeah, asthma's on that secondary list. Mm -hmm. uh, when we're talking to, you know, the question is when we're trying to tell somebody why they should get the vaccine at the, and that there may be side effects, how do we explain why the side effects occur? So th this is a, a really important question for a couple of reasons. Um, one thing we have not talked about, uh, but is important, is that there is a lot of what we call vaccine hesitancy in the community. There are a lot of people that are still very up in the air about whether to get the vaccine or not. Um, I, I usually put people with respect to the vaccine in three buckets. You have people who are saying, put me first in line. I want to get it, no question. Just give it to me. Uh, that's on one end. On the other end, we have what are known now, uh, or what are often referred to as, as or who are often referred to as the anti-vaxxers. These are folks that don't believe in any vaccines, period. And I don't think there'll be a whole lot that we can do to change their minds. But the larger group in the in the middle are folks that don't rule it out completely, but they either have concerns or they want to see a little bit more, you know, how everybody else is doing before they make the decision. And that's a very important group to target. Um, and I think that each of us, when we get our vaccination, it would be nice if we played, if we recognized opportunities to educate others about how we felt and being very open about it. You know, the slide that you showed taught me about side effects, and I call them side effects more than adverse reactions. They are not in a minority. I mean, 92% of people have pain at the injection site. I think it's much more effective when you have a friend or a family member who was hesitant about the vaccine, got it, and then was very open with you and say, look, you know, I got it, I did fine, or I didn't do fine, I had a headache for first, and then it was gone by 24 hours, and I'm glad I got it. Everybody, it would really be helpful if everybody could be a champion. I mean, it's great to see uh, Joe Biden on TV getting his shot, and that probably has an effect. But I do think a lot of trust is gen, uh, generated more when folks in our own lives are the ones who are acting as those champions. But they are common. 
Sure. They're common, but they're also self-limited. So uh, like I said, if, if, if you think I 23 do. hours of muscle Go pain ahead. is bad, try COVID. <laughs> you know? yeah. Try a bad case of COVID. And it was brought to our attention that on this slide, the injection site swelling is listed twice with two different statistics on there. And that was this was taken straight from the Moderna website. So uh, I'm sure there's a reason behind that. But, uh, you know, your, your, your arm's probably going to swell, you know, in that, in that one little area if you get poked with it. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to answer just uh, two more questions, I think, and then we'll wrap it up. Any contraindication to pregnisone or other immunosuppressive uh, agents? In, in relation to getting the, the vaccine? Uh, no. However, I think if you have any question, if you are a patient with a chronic condition that requires steroids on a daily basis, or you're undergoing chemotherapy, or frankly, you're getting monoclonal antibodies because you have an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, it never hurts to ask your doctor, the ones, who, not, not any old doctor, but the ones that are giving you this stuff, what their opinion is. And you'll find that most of these doctors will say, go ahead and get it, but it's just nice to have that reassurance. There may be something in your particular case that doesn't make you one of the mainstream cases and that that doctor knows about and might say, you know, right now we're treating a flare-up of your disease. It's probably better to wait. Uh, you know, so when in doubt, consult your provider. If you have one of these conditions, consult your provider. But in principle, it's, they're not contraindications. Right. And we've, we've received a lot of questions, you know, uh, especially on the, on the webinar today about, well, what if I'm allergic to penicillin or if I'm allergic to this and this and this and this and this? Uh, and the answer has been no, unless it's one of those specific ingredients in the, in the vaccine, which I realize people don't know what's in the vaccine, right? That penicillin could be in the vaccine for all, for all they know, but it's just those, those, those specific uh, additives to the vaccine that if you've had a history of a, of a severe reaction to those, you want to be watched. Now, if you've had a, an, an anaphylactic reaction to penicillin and needed, and needed epinephrine, it's good to tell your doctor that and whoever's going to be giving you the vaccine so we can keep a close eye on you, you know, just for a few extra minutes and make sure everything's okay. But in general, uh, there's very few contraindications to getting this vaccine. It appears to be a very safe vaccine with few few side effects and few contraindications. So uh, of course, George and I recommend everybody get it, encourage your family to get it, encourage your workers to get it. Uh, we wanna make sure everybody stays uh, protected. With that, I, I'm gonna wrap up. George, any closing comments? No, uh, just uh, again, encouraging people to get the vaccine and that once you get it, that you tell your uh, your friends uh, about your experience. I know that in the overwhelming majority of cases, it will have been a good experience. And then after you get that second dose, you're going to be very, very happy. And you're going to be even more likely to tell your friends and family and loved ones about it, uh, to encourage them to get it when it's their turn, <laughs> I should add. Thanks, George. Uh, we appreciate you jumping on this webinar again. We appreciate everybody attending today. Yes, you will have access to these slides. Yes, you will have access to the uh, to the recording. Yes, we will answer every one of the questions that was typed in, and we will be giving that those answers back to you via via email. So rest assured, I know there were dozens of unanswered questions. We just ran out of time, but we'll get everything answered. Uh, we hope everybody gets vaccinated. We hope everybody stays safe, uh, and uh, we will see you next time. Take care. Thank you, folks. Stay safe, stay well. <laughs>